Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bonjour, bienvenue la série de sermons de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Please check it out. God bless you and take care. Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have, said, uh, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit and worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Going down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans came from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. One day, Jesus decided he needed to leave Judea and head to Galilee. The only problem was is that the qu quickest route to Galilee passed right through Samaria. 
The Jewish people considered Samaritans to be racially inferior and religiously inferior. After they had been conquered in 720 BC by the Assyrians, the bulk of the Samaritans were transported to other places. The Assyrians repopulated Samaria with people from a variety of other nations. Inevitably, the Jews remaining in Samaria began to intermarry with those foreigners. To the Jews, this was an unforgivable sin. It was an unspeakable crime. The, Mar the Samaritans had lost their racial purity. They had lost the right to be called Jews at all. But to go around Samaria to Galilee took twice as long. Jews held their noses when they took this shortcut. But Jesus chose the Samaritan route. And after traveling a while, Jesus came to a well. And it says there, he sat down because he was tired and thirsty. And there he saw a Samaritan woman at noon drawing water from a well. Jesus starts a conversation with her. To everyone involved, this was utterly shocking. It was bad enough to talk to a Samaritan. But conversation with a Samaritan woman made the problem at least twice as bad. Rabbis weren't supposed to talk with any woman in public. A rabbinic ancient saying goes like this, this, He that talks with a woman brings evil on himself, neglects the study of the law, and at the last will inherit hell. That's quite a price for talking to a woman. <laughs> Apparently Jesus went through Samaria to do more than save time. He came on a demolition project. He came to tear down walls. He came to show that his kingdom would include Samaritans, and Gentiles, and Greeks, and Puerto Ricans, and African Americans, and Italians, as well as Jews. And his kingdom valued women as much as it valued men. In fact, part of Jesus' core followers were women. That got tongues to wagging down at the local synagogue. This man is not only traveling with men, he's traveling with women. We hear he actually talks to them. One of the people actually financially supporting Jesus and the troop that went around with him was Joanna, whose husband worked for Herod, it says. You know, the one trying to kill Jesus. Isn't that something? Herod's trying to kill Jesus. The guy working for him takes the money from Herod and gives it to his wife to support Jesus. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, approximately half of the church's early infrastructure was headed by women. There were women deacons, women pastors, even a woman apostle named Junius. Philip, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, had seven daughters that were considered prophets. The scriptures point out that women were the first at the birth of Jesus. Women were last at the cross when all the guys skedaddled. They were the first to witness the resurrection and the first to testify about it, even though their testimony was rejected because they were women. Jesus apparently liked and valued and treated with equality half of the human race that was not called male. That was one wall Jesus started demo demolishing that hot day in Samaria. The other wall that started to come down was racism. You see, Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that the essence of spiritual maturity was how many people you could exclude. Jesus believed that the essence of spirituality was how many people you could include. He associated with outcasts. He spoke with them, touched them, ate with them, loved them. Jesus excluded no one who came to him in need. 
Miroslav Volf wrote, by embracing the outcast, Jesus underscored the sinfulness of persons and systems that kept them outcasts. Jesus was a bridge builder. He especially, his specialty was dismantling walls created by human pride and sin and supposed racial superiority. Jesus came right after that. I read uh, one pastor who was observing our tendency to exclude others on a plane. He said, I thought of this tendency we have to divide people the last time I was on a plane. The first class people were served gourmet food on china and crystal by their flight attendants. Those of us in coach ate snacks served in paper bags with plastic wrappers. The first class passengers had room to stretch and sleep. Those of us in coach were sitting with a proximity usually reserved for engaged couples in the back row of a movie theater. <laughs> the first class passengers had flight attendants bring them moist to toilets, to towelettes, <laughs> not toilets. Uh, it's not that good in first class. Anyway, holy moly. <laughs> Let me try this again. Towelettes for comfort and personal hygiene. Those of us in coach had to sit and stew in our own sweat. Almost every flight, once the plane is underway, a curtain gets drawn to separate the two compartments. It is not to be violated. It is like the Berlin Wall or the veil that separated the court of Gentiles from the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. The curtain is a reminder throughout the flight that some people are first class and some people aren't. Those who aren't first class are not to violate the boundary. They can't even see what's going on behind the other side of the curtain. On my recent flight, a voice came on the intercom system a few minutes into the flight, telling us that because of new security measures, the attendants were not allowed to fasten the curtain anymore. Oh, horrors. But the airline wanted all of us in the court of Gentiles to know that we were not allowed to use the facilities in the Holy of Holies even though there was one restroom for eight people up there and two restrooms for the several hundred of us, mostly children under six who had been drinking Jolt, jolt Cola the whole flight on the other side. Sin causes people to find someone and exclude them for some reason. Have you understood? And, and one of the main reasons is skin color. Sin creates us and them. In Jesus' kingdom, there is only us's. Sin creates feelings of superiority at someone else's expense. Jesus says we are all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Jesus apparently, to the shock of his disciples, loved Samaritans as much as he loved Jews. The great irony of all of this is that the supposed superior, what the supposed superior group loses Exclusion and racism and sexism take us further away from Jesus who is reaching out to the very people we are excluding. We rob ourselves of growth and miss the Christ who is embracing who the elite reject. Jesus' disciples didn't understand that if they rejected Samaritans, they were rejecting the rabbi who came for Samaritans. Of course, the final demolition of the wall came on a cross when Jesus completely dismantles the wall that created the court of Gentiles where women and slaves and non-Jews stood outside the temple looking at a distance. Jesus tore the curtain in two that separated us from God's presence in the Holy of Holies. But he did more than that. 
He tore down the wall that excluded people from God's presence and at the court of the Gentiles that kept us from God and each other. And the demolition started one day at noon with a Samaritan woman. I love how Jesus reaches out to people, by the way. Have you ever noticed how Jesus reached people? Often, often, he starts with a question. And he looks at this Samaritan woman and says, Will you get me a drink? To an ancient enemy, he asks, Will you help me? This floors the woman. There is no judgment, no tracks, no lectures, no bullhorns. Just Jesus looking at a woman saying, could you do me a favor? The woman's defenses begin to go down. Uh, You're supposed to be rejecting me right now. You want me to help you? If you knew the gift that God, of God and who brings it, you would ask me for a much big, bigger favor than I'm asking you for right now, Jesus responds. I am bringing something better than the water in that well. I am bringing living water. The woman takes Jesus literally, just like Nicodemus did. Where is there water running around this place, she said. Can you give us more water than our father Jacob, which is in this well? To which Jesus responds, in essence, I'm not talking about liquid water found in that well. I'm talking about something else. Shortly after you drink whatever water is from this well, you will thirst again. What I'm giving you will, feel, will more than fill your belly. It will fill your soul. What I'm giving will cause your soul to never be empty again. Will never, your heart will never dehydrate again. We humans are limited in every way. We have only one capacity that is infinite. We were created with an insatiable thirst. We were created with a bottomless pit inside of us. Every person here today has a bottomless pit. The desire that never ends. The neediness that never ends. Have you ever wondered why humans always want more? The problem is that most of the human race doesn't know what it wants more of. So we seek to fill our thirsty souls with all kinds of things. And they never do the job. I'm sorry, but a Mercedes will never fill your soul. A pile of money will never fill your soul. A PhD will never fill your soul. Imagine you're dying of thirst in a desert, and someone walks up to you and says, I know what you need. Here's $5,000 while you're dying. Guess what? Problem not solved. Someone else offers you a promotion as you lie there dying and dehydrated. Problem still not solved. There is only one cure for a man or a woman dying of thirst. You need water, not new Jordan tennis shoes. Because those things won't quench your thirst. The soul needs what it was made for. We must fill the void in our hearts with the only thing that can fill the void in our hearts. Living water. The Spirit of God. The love of Jesus. The presence of Christ. Infinite need requires infinite resource. Our thirst, our endless desires for more, point us to the unlimited love of God. When we drink from other resources, expecting them to fill us, guess what happens? Not only are you not filled, but sometimes we become addicted to what we're drinking. To take Jesus' metaphor a little further, 
Our addiction is like us drinking salt water. Do you know what that does to a person to drink salt water? Salt water makes a person thirstier and thirstier the more they drink until ultimately it kills them. Drugs are salt water. Alcoholism is salt water. Porn is salt water. The addiction some of us have to hate and bitterness is salt water. The addiction some of us have to control is salt water. We're, some of us are addicted to food and money and anything we try to fill our, sel- our souls with. And all it does is create a thirst for more and more, even as taking these things leave us emptier and emptier. You cannot live on salt water. Amen. They say the best high you'll ever get on heroin or co- cocaine is the first. Then you kill yourself trying to duplicate it as you use more and more and get less and less high. Our souls were created for one great thing. His life poured into ours. Christ replacing our dead life with his resurrection life. Christ's love and power flowing through us. You can't forgive? Let Christ take over because Christ can forgive anybody. You can't overcome sin? Christ's life flowing through us can. You can't love well? Surrender to the river of love flowing there in you. Christ is in us if you are a believer. His Spirit inhabits us. And that creates a river that fills our soul with what we have been thirsting for for a lifetime. What is living water? His life in ours. And you know what that means? That means our primary job, if that is true, is to drink. Our job is not to try to turn ourselves into some sort of super Christian. Our job is to drink. Our job is not to defeat some sin by willpower. Our job is to drink. Our job is not to try harder and harder and get less and less. Our job is to drink living water. I remember the story of a Peruvian ship that got lost lost its fresh water supply while at sea. The crew became so dehydrated they couldn't function. The ship drifted for days. Unknown to them, they had drifted into the Amazon River, which is miles wide at its mouth. It still looks like an ocean. And there, this parched and dying crew saw another ship. With all the energy they had left, they cried out to this other ship, Water! We need fresh water. We're dying. To which the crew on the other ship responded, lower your buckets. Fresh water is all around you. You are in the Amazon River, not the Atlantic Ocean. And as I thought about that story, I feel the same thing happens in church all the time. I hear people going, There's nothing to this. I'm still thirsty. I'm miserable. I'm addicted. I'm struggling and dehydrated with no hope. And all of this happens while living water flows all around us. Lower your buckets. Prayer is lowering your bucket. Scripture, open to the Spirit as you read it, is lowering your bucket. Fellowship in real Christian community, depth Christian community, is lowering your bucket. We're in the Amazon River for Pete's sake. Drink! This Samaritan woman says, Give me this water so I will quit being thirsty. And at this point, like Jesus usually does at some point, he gets personal. Okay, I'll explain it to you. Go get your husband. We'll talk this over as a family. 
I have no husband. That's right, Jesus said, you've had five. And the man you're with right now is not your husband. It's assumed this woman of Samaria was sexually promiscuous and immoral. She was, you know, a hussy. I think it's a bum rap. Women in Jesus' day had no legal power to divorce a man. No woman could say to a man, get out, we're having a divorce. She had no choice in the matter. It was all the male's prerogative. So if she lost five husbands, it was not her fault. And in her current arrangement, it was still a man's choice. If a man wanted to, he could bring in a second woman into his current marriage as a concubine who had no social status. Anyway, all of these arrangements probably were her only means of survival. When Jesus talked to her about her five husbands and the guy she was living with, Jesus was primarily trying to address this woman's pain, not her sin. How many men can you lose by death or by rejection before you start to lose faith? How much humiliation or loss can one person take? She's working on number six. Jesus let her know he knew. He understood. And her response is, you're a man who gets it. You must be a prophet of God. And she goes, well, since I have a prophet of God right in front of me, let me ask you a theological question. Who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? Is worship supposed to be on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship or the temple in Jerusalem? To which Jesus, in essence, answers, starting right now, my dear lady, your question is irrelevant. The day is coming when worship will be about the temple of the heart, not temples made with stone. Real worship will transcend all the old categories. The day is coming when those who worship the Father will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and your spirit will become the true temple of God. In essence, Jesus was saying, Real worship will not be limited to this mountain or that mountain or to this building or that building. The true altar of worship will become the human heart. True worship will come from the deep, deepest recesses of our soul. One day, real worship will happen anywhere and everywhere with anyone, individually and gathered together in my name. Um, yeah, Brian, Brian, oh God, his name, Brian McLaren, yeah, he, he talks about the day he went beyond religion. He said, I grew up in a religious home, a full dose, hardcore, shaken together, and my cup runneth over, conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical, Christian home. Church every Sunday morning, you bet. Sunday school, oh yeah, plus memorizing scripture for Sunday school. And of course, there was Wednesday night prayer meeting every Wednesday night. And in the summer, there was vacation Bible school and Christian summer camp. And he said, even occasionally, there were revival meetings that required attendance every night for two weeks. God help us. But he said, as I became an adolescent, things began to change. He realized that he was doing all this religious activity, and yet something was missing 
He realized there was more to following Jesus than just being right about doctrine. And he says, right in the middle of all this ambivalence, some neighborhood buddies, similarly conflicted, invited me on a weekend retreat with the youth group from their Southern Baptist church. And that's where spirituality snuck up and crashed upon me like an unexpected wave at the beach. The retreat leader sent us off on on a Saturday afternoon for an hour of silence during which we were supposed to pray. He said, I climbed a tree, being a back-to-nature guy, only discovered that my perch was along an ant superhighway and that mosquitoes liked the shade of that particular tree. But eventually, between swatting and scratching, I actually prayed. My prayer went something like this. Dear God, before I die, I hope you will let me see the most beautiful sights, hear the most beautiful sounds, and feel the most beautiful feelings that life has to offer. He said it wasn't really an altruistic prayer asking God to end war or world hunger. And he said, I didn't even bring up my many sins, although like any hormonally infused teenage boy, I had my share of things to feel guilty about. He said it wasn't a theological prayer affirming important tenets of the faith. He said it was pretty adolescent. But he said it was my prayer. Honest and at least a little loftier than my occasional pleas for that cute girl in Spanish class to get a crush on me or to help on the algebra quiz I forgot to study for again. He said, later a few friends and I snuck away to a hillside and found ourselves sitting under one of those sparkling autumn nights. He said, I walked several paces away from my friends and lay back in the grass, fingers interlocked behind my head, looking up, feeling strangely quiet and at peace. And then, he says, there something began to happen. I had this feeling of being seen, known, loved, named by someone bigger than the sky that expanded above me. I felt that the great big creator of the whole shebang was somehow noticing little tiny me. And and then he said, the oddest thing happened as this realization sank in. He said, I began to laugh. I wasn't guffawing, but I was laughing at first gently, but eventually almost uncontrollably. Profound laughter surged from within me. It wasn't a reactive laughter, the kind that erupts when you hear a good joke or you see somebody do something ridiculous. It was more like an overflowing laughter as if all that empty space I had been feeling opened up inside of me and was gradually being filled up with pure happiness, and once it reached the rim, it spilled over into incandescent joy. I was so full of the awareness, God loves me, me, God. At this moment, I can feel it. The joy felt huge, so big I got a little scared. My stomach started to hurt because I was laughing so hard. Not only had I never felt anything like this before, I have never heard of anything like this before. I started to feel as though I might burst apart because the joy felt bigger than I could contain. He said, I prayed again. God, I don't think I can take much more of this. Maybe you'd better tone it down a little. Gradually, the euphoria subsided and I quietly moved back towards my friends. And he said, when I got back to more, towards my friends, I remembered, 
I remembered my prayer in the tree a couple of hours earlier. It hit me. God really had answered my prayer. In the previous few minutes, I had seen the most beautiful thing eyes can see, the glory of God shining in the radiance of creation. I had felt the most beautiful thing that any heart could feel, the love of God and the love of my friends. And at that, my sniffling turned into sobs, again coming from a deep part of me that I had never been aware of before. And he concludes his story this way. From that night on, I was a wholehearted lover of the Creator, a person thirsty for the Holy Spirit, and a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. That is what living water tastes like. That is what it is all about, what Jesus said it is all about. Religion is only helpful to a point. But at some point, you must learn to drink living water. And you will find living water in you and with you. Because you see, if you've accepted Christ, Jesus is not an idea. He is not a creed. He is not a doctrine. But the source of life pouring his life into you. The woman says, I, I know the Messiah is coming. And I think he will talk a lot like you're talking, Jesus. To which Jesus responds, I am the Messiah. By the way, this was the only time before the last week of Jesus' life that he ever told a group who he really was. That he ever told a group his true identity. Because he didn't want to get popular. He didn't come to get popular. He came to hang on a cross. And you're not going to hang on a cross going around saying, yep, I'm the Messiah. This woman ran home and told her village about Jesus. This woman became the Billy Graham of Samaria. People, it says, and in the Greek it indicates this, people came running and running and running. In all the places Jesus spoke, there was only one place where Jesus received a reception like this. He never received a reception like this with the Jews. It was with those Samaritans. Most of that village followed Christ after that day. No Jewish village ever received Jesus like this, not in his lifetime. It is the Samaritans, not the Jews, who recognize Israel's true Messiah. It is the Samaritans who, even before the other disciples, realized they were dealing with the Savior of the world. That day, outsiders became insiders, and it's never stopped. I don't know what else to do, some of you may be saying. I don't know how to access the living water. I don't know where to start. Can I give you a suggestion in chronological order? The first thing you need to do is get in touch with your own soul. What really are you trying to fill it with? What really are you drinking? And if you're not drinking of God, if, if, if drinking this other stuff has, has filled your soul, what I really suggest you do is this. Pray for thirst. Pray to get as thirsty as you can get. 
And then, because the surest sign that the Holy Spirit is moving is when people want more of God, not more of what God can do, not more of this or more of that, not this blessing or that blessing. When revival comes, it is when people want God, when they want living water. And then learn to drink. Learn how to lower your bucket. Learn how to pray. Learn how to, to read Scripture. Living water is here and now, waiting for you to taste and see for yourself the only thing that quenches the thirst that drives us all. Everything else will just leave you thirstier if it's not living water. And I'll just add this towards the end of this sermon. Remember, if you reject anyone, you are probably rejecting the one who came for everyone. Make be careful who you exclude. Be careful who you look down on. Be careful because the person you're looking down on loves, is loved by Jesus, hung up, and Jesus hung on a cross for them, and Jesus is coming after them. Be careful who you hate or who you're prejudiced against because Jesus has an entirely different opinion. What I'm going to ask us to do now is I want you to, to, to focus. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and I want you to ask yourself, what is my soul full of this morning? Is it living water or is it something else that just makes me thirstier and thirstier and thirstier and there's no end in sight? And the second thing, and this is true for all of us, is God make us thirsty for living water. Not salt water, not this thing or that thing. Make us thirsty for living water. And then teach us how to drink it.
Lord Jesus, make us hungry for your spirit, for living bread and living water. Lord, help us to get in touch with the deepest recesses of who we are because there we will find our real thirst. There we will find what we really worship. There we will find our real neediness and pain. Help us to get in touch with that and then help us to drink living water. Fill us with your joy and your peace and your love. Make us keenly aware of your presence. Come to us, Lord Jesus, and show us the infinite resource of what you are, the only thing that can fill us forever. Help us, Lord, to stop just being religious. Help us to drink, really drink. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like the intercessors to come forward and uh, worship team to come forward. We will uh, be glad to, to pray for you about anything and everything before you leave this place if you so choose. Uh, we're going to ask you to stand now. Unless you want to sit there and keep doing what you're doing. If the Spirit's speaking to you, don't sing. Listen, and uh, if you're getting living water, keep drinking it. Let's sing, and we will pray up front. Oh 
Jesus, help us to drink. Some of us have been around church for so long, we think religious activity is a substitute for what, for living water. It isn't. Some of us have never tasted living water. Lord, I pray in your name that soon they taste living water and drink it in. Lord, some of us used to drink it, and we drifted. Lord, draw us back to the stream. Draw us back to living water. Help us, Lord, in the days to come to thirst for you more than we thirst for anything else in this world. And finally, we will not be thirsty anymore. In Jesus' name, if we pray. Amen. I will trust you. I will trust you. I know you never fail. I will trust you. Jesus, I will. Try. 